0: I just want to say, if you're watching from home right now, you're watching with family, or you're watching by yourself, or maybe you're listening later in the car, wherever you find yourself right now, can I just remind you, there is hope. I mean, all for, for this entire summer, we've been in a series called "This Living Hope," where we're looking at the hope that we have in Jesus. and oh, it is so tempting right now in this cultural moment, to put our hope in something else that we can grab onto. And Peter wants to continually drive our attention to Jesus as the only hope that we have. And so I'm so glad you are tuning in today. But here's the thing, as I was preparing for this message study and this text this week, it, it became clear to me that there's a lot of life that just doesn't make sense. Have you ever had an experience where in the middle of it and maybe even after it, you thought, I don't know what to do with this? Uh, my my wife and I, before we had our children, uh, my wife was really into theater. In fact, she grew up in the theater world. She grew up acting. She was on a few TV shows and in a few commercials, but her true love lies with the stage, lies with theater. And, And so my wife was a part of this performance. And towards the end of the showings of this performance, it was near Halloween. And so the cast decided we're going to do a giant Halloween cast party. And I remember them explicitly saying, we all need to dress up. Now, here's the thing. I'm not a theater person myself, but I'm married to a theater person. I have theater friends. I know theater people. Okay. When they say dress up, it means you got to go big. And so, my wife and I are debating what should we be for this Halloween cast party, and we decide on King Kong and Jane. Now, now to be Jane means you're just like a beautiful-looking woman, right? I mean, that's what Jane is, so my wife Sarah fits that part perfectly. To be King Kong means you have to have a giant gorilla suit. Now, I'm a youth pastor, and so it's a part of the job. I've got a giant gorilla costume. And so I put that on, and I mean, it is all in kind of costume. There's the mask, the gloves, the feet, the hairy costume. I mean, it is all about the gorilla. And so we drive up to the party, and it just turns out that we were the very last to arrive. And as I'm walking in the doors where all the guests are already seated and hanging out and in conversation, all I can see is just a little bit through the eye holes of the gorilla mask. And as I open the door, guess how many people are dressed up that night? Zero. Yeah, you got it right at home. Great, good job. Zero people are dressed up. I literally am in a gorilla costume. Nobody else is dressed up. I have to kind of eventually take off my mask. But here's the thing. The gorilla costume was really like hot. And so, I mean, I just got some basketball shorts and a tank top on. I don't have a lot to walk around in this party other than the gorilla costume. And so I'm just kind of walking around trying to figure it out. And the whole night I was thinking, Myself, what do I do with this? What what do I make of this experience? How do I interpret what's going on? And maybe you're feeling like that right now in this moment that we find ourselves in. Maybe for some of you, you're starting elementary or middle school or high school, or you're starting your first year of college and you're not sure if you're going to live on campus or if you're going to be doing distance learning from home. Maybe. For some of you, you've recently built something from Ikea and you've opened up those instructions and you're like, this was not made for humans. You know what I mean? They're, this doesn't make any sense. Or maybe, maybe you're like me and you're, you're a parent. And with each of our four kids, whenever that moment has come that they stick their finger in their nose and eat their boogers, I literally think to myself, Why? Like, how does that make any sense? And with each kid, as they've done that and grown out of that phase, thankfully, I literally think to myself, why is that appealing? That just doesn't make any sense. Well, friends, today, the passage that God has us in is a passage that's confusing, It's a passage that maybe at a first glance doesn't make a whole lot of sense. In fact, as I've read so many commentaries this week, essentially if I could summarize all the brilliant minds that have thought about this passage, at some point in their commentaries, they say something to the effect of, I don't know what Peter's trying to say. (laughs) I have no idea. And In fact, One of the commentaries that I was reading this week said this is the most obscure and difficult passage in the New Testament. Now, now Martin Luther, the reformer and theologian born in 1483, he said that this section of verses is a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament. So I do not know for certainty just what Peter means well lucky us this is the passage we are diving into and and i think that though it is a confusing and challenging passage That we can be sure of four things. That as we dive into this text, we can be sure of four things. Number one is this. If you're the note-taking type or you got your phone and you want to jot some things down or you want to download the sermon notes on whatever platform you're watching, let's jump in together. Big idea number one is this. What can we be sure of? The death of Jesus comforts us when we suffer. The death of Jesus comforts us when we suffer. You can find me in 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. And by the way, Pastor Lisa did a phenomenal job covering our verses before this last week. It was absolutely a phenomenal sermon, so deep and practical. Make sure you go back and watch that if you hadn't. But building off of what Pastor Lisa shared last week, let's read verse 18. For Christ also suffered... Once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God, he was put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit. Friends, the text says that Jesus also suffered, that Jesus suffered for doing good. Maybe some of you right now, that perfectly describes where you're at, that you are suffering, but the worst part of all is that it feels like you're suffering for doing the right thing. You're suffering for making a tough call that needed to be made. Friends, Jesus understands that. The righteous Son of God exchanged His life for you and I, the unrighteous, the perfect and whole Jesus, for you and I who are broken and who are sinful maybe you're a parent, and you just feel like you're doing the right thing. You're disciplining your kids, or you're, you're trying to point them to God, or you are having to make tough calls in your family, and, and you're suffering for it. Maybe you're an essential worker, and you're doing the right thing, but you're suffering. I was talking with my doctor, who's a doctor over at Pomona Valley Hospital, and she was just sharing with me that they're suffering over there, that they're overwhelmed by all that's going on. They're tired, morale is low. Maybe you're an essential worker. You're in law enforcement or the medical profession or or you're in a restaurant working or you transport people. I don't know what your role is, but you're essential and it feels like you're suffering or maybe in your job or in your marriage. Friends, Jesus can relate to that. Now here's some hope. There's a closeness with Christ that only comes with suffering like Christ. Friends, let me say that again. There is a closeness with Jesus that only comes through suffering like Jesus. And I know you and I, we want to run away from suffering. But in it, we find solidarity with Jesus. We find hope in Jesus. But here's the other aspect. Here's the other message of hope suffering is not the end of your story right now you're in the middle of suffering but you're not in the end of your story friends remember Jesus is the beginning the middle and the end of your story and so I'm not downplaying the suffering you're facing but I'm reminding you that it is not the end of your story that Jesus also suffered and why did Jesus suffer Peter says It's to bring you to God. Did you know that you are literally sandwiched by God's love? That Jesus' death and resurrection brings you to God. And then as James says in James chapter four, verse eight, come near to God and he will come near to you. It's this idea that the cross and resurrection, the empty tomb of Jesus brings you to God. And as you move near to God, he also moves near to you and you are literally sandwiched by God's love, whether you feel it or not. God adores you. The first Bible verse that I ever memorized as a Christian was Deuteronomy 31.8 that says this, the Lord himself goes before you and he will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Jesus is always with you. And so this this is a a big idea that you got to cling to in this moment, and it's this, that you are never alone because everything you go through, Jesus will go through with you. Hold on to that. Maybe maybe you need to say it with me. Let's say it together from wherever you're watching from or listening from, in your car, even if you got somebody with you, even if your family's around you and they're gonna think you're weird talking from your bedroom, repeat it with me, okay? You are never alone because everything you go through, Jesus will go through with you. Maybe you need to reverse that and internalize it. I am never alone because everything I go through, Jesus will go through with me. Second thing that we can be sure of is this. The resurrection of Jesus has power over demons. Now, here's where the verses get really, really interesting. Tune in with me. Verse 19. After being made alive, he, referring to Jesus went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. Now, every theologian that I've read has concluded that when it talks about Jesus being made alive, it is talking about what he did after his resurrection. So it's not talking about those three days that he was in the tomb. It's talking about after he rose from the dead and before he ascended, Jesus visits these imprisoned spirits. Now, the... uh, North African theologian, Tertullian, born in 155 AD, he was the first Latin writer to coin the term Trinity and really develop that theology. His conclusion about these verses was that Jesus literally went to every person who was dead. Somehow, as a resurrected being, he talked to their spirits and told them about the good news that God had defeated death in Christ. But most scholars, most scholars believe that the imprisoned spirits that Peter is talking about are the fallen angels and demons. Part of that is because never is the word spirits, at least in Peter, never is the word spirits used to describe people. It's talking about Spiritual forces. And so most scholars believe that that Jesus, during the days before his ascension, after his resurrection, that Jesus literally communicated with demons and fallen angels from the time of Noah. You can go back and read that passage in Genesis chapter six. It's a really interesting, bizarre story. But the, the reality is that Jesus went and he talked with these spirits and proclaimed the message. That Jesus' death and resurrection, that his own death and resurrection had power over all of them, that they no longer had power over people, but that the resurrected Christ was now in charge. And Jesus did this many times before He before He died, right? I mean, He He talked with those that were possessed by demons and cast them out, cast those demons out in pigs. I mean, Jesus did this all the time, but this was a powerful proclamation of what his death and his resurrection meant for the world. Notice, though, in verse 20, the focus is not on disobedient people, but on these disobedient spirits, on these fallen angels and demons. But there is also an emphasis on God's patience. The Mishnah is a a, uh, a recording from about the year 200 AD of sort of the, the conversations and the thoughts of ancient rabbis about the Old Testament. And in the Mishnah, it talks about God's patience when it says, there were 10 generations from Adam to Noah to show how great was God's long suffering. For all the generations provoked him continually until he brought upon them the waters of the flood. Friends, God is patient with us. In fact, God is not angrily absent. He is purposefully patient. God is not angrily absent. God is purposefully patient. In 2nd Peter, in 2nd Peter chapter 3 verse 9 it says this. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Friends, God is a patient God with you and I. Oh, he's generous and he's kind and he's loving and, and he understands and he's patient because he wants to draw you and I wherever you're at right now, whatever kind of life you are living, whatever kind of sin you're steeped in, you need to know that you are created by a God who is patient but who wants you to follow him, who wants you to come back to him. Number three, the third thing we can be sure of, the resurrection of Jesus makes baptism meaningful. The resurrection of Jesus makes baptism meaningful. Now, buckle up, y'all, because it's about to get even more bizarre. Verse 21. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, did Peter just say that we're saved by baptism? Is that what he meant? Let me caution us before we jump into unpacking this verse. It's incredibly important that we don't build entire theologies around a single verse. That's how cults start. That's how crazy different belief systems start is when we build an entire theology around one obscure verse. And this passage is the only passage in the New Testament that even hints at baptism being salvation. And as I think we're going to look at and show in a few minutes, that's not exactly what Peter is saying. And we know that all of Scripture tells us and points to with a lot of clarity what it is that gives you and I salvation from our sins. And it's recorded in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. The, uh, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's Paul getting real clear about how salvation comes to us. Or, or John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life or Hebrews 7.25. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Salvation comes by faith. It comes by believing that what God has done on the cross and in his resurrection saves you and I from our sins. (laughs) Peter makes a few things clear that baptism is not. Baptism is not the removing of dirt, right? Baptism is not like a a sanctified bath time, right? That's not what baptism is. He also makes it clear, baptism is not this magical thing that when you every time you go under some kind of body of water and come out of that water, all of a sudden you feel like you're saved, right? I mean, none of you have been at the pool this summer and and somebody dunked you and you came out and said, I'm saved, right? I mean, that just doesn't happen. Going underwater and coming out of water is a pretty natural experience. But what baptism is, is it's an outward expression of an inward reality that Jesus is your everything. Baptism is an outward expression of an inward reality. It kind of reminds me of Our wedding day. In fact, sometimes I think about baptism as your spiritual wedding day. I remember standing there in front of all of our friends and family holding Sarah's hand. We've been married 11 years now, and I remember that day. I remember looking at her and making promises and commitments to her, but it wasn't the first time that we said, I love you to each other. It wasn't the first time that we talked about being faithful to one another and living our lives together. Our relationship had previously, before that day, been shaping how we lived our lives. And yet that day was so important because it was in front of all our family and friends and before God that we said we are committing to one another. See, if you haven't been baptized yet, I would encourage you to go to PurposeChurch.com, to to email us. We'd love to help you in that process because it is such an important day for you and I to look back on. And, And it really begs the question, why is Peter so big on baptism? Like, why is it such a big deal? I want to maybe suggest two reasons why. Number one, baptism is about you pledging your allegiance to Jesus. Baptism is a very public it's a very visible illustration that your allegiance lies with Jesus, that at the end of the day, that's the hill you're going to die in, that's the life that you are going to live, you will be shaped and you will live in the world as somebody who is a follower of Christ. And that's what he says here, right? He says, it's not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. The pledge that Jesus has saved you and that you are one of his and that you are a part of his body, the church. But I think baptism is also a really big deal for these people in this time because they were suffering. I mean, remember the context that this letter is written in. People are being tortured, people are being murdered because they believe that Jesus rose from the dead. The church is under heavy persecution. And baptism is one of those moments that when you're separated from your family, when things you witness and see traumatize you and shock you, when it feels like there's no more hope, When somebody dies because they love Jesus, baptism is that memory that no one can take away. In fact, maybe you're watching this or listening to this and you are under heavy persecution right now. Maybe you're in a different country or you're right here in America. I mean, we're all missionaries, right? If if you're a follower of Jesus, you are a missionary wherever you find yourself. Your identity is one who continues the mission of Jesus, which is making disciples. It's why our vision at Purpose Church is everyone everywhere following Jesus. That is not just something that we do when we gather. It's who we are out in the world maybe you're experiencing heavy persecution right now. I want you to remember those moments. Maybe that baptism. Maybe that day that you decided to surrender your life to Jesus. That moment that he called you into the profession that you are in right now. Hold on to that and remember that your current situation is not the end of your story. Hold on to the hope. It is in Christ. The first century Jewish historian Josephus, he, he talks about how the early church understood baptism as a thing that you do, as a, as a symbol of a changed heart. He actually writes about John the Baptist. He, he, he described John the Baptist's views on baptism this way. He said this, John the Baptist taught people to lead righteous lives, to practice justice toward their fellows, and piety towards God, and so doing to join in baptism. In his view, this was a necessary preliminary if baptism was to be acceptable to God. They must not employ it to gain pardon for whatever sins they committed, but as consecration of the body, implying that the soul was already cleansed by right behavior. That right behavior being First and foremost, receiving Christ as your Savior. Baptism is not about being pardoned of something. It's about celebrating something. And what is it that we are celebrating in baptism? We are celebrating resurrection. In fact, every time you see a baptism, you know how when you go to a wedding, they talk about how, man, do you remember what your wedding was like? And when when you watch a wedding, you kind of remember your own. When you see a baptism, you should be thinking resurrection. Because baptism screams resurrection. And that's what Peter gets to here. He says, It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, resurrection was not a mishap or, or something that just kind of happened. Resurrection was the plan from the beginning. Jesus predicted it all over the place. I just want to show you one passage in Mark chapter 8, verses 31 to 32. Listen to what it says. Jesus, he then began to teach. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But not only did Jesus predict it, but even his enemies remembered it. In Matthew chapter 27, after Jesus has died on the cross, we learn that they, his enemies, have not forgotten about his predictions. Matthew 27, verse 62 and 63, the next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver, talking about Jesus, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. See, baptism is all about resurrection. When you're baptized, it's the picture of going underwater and that being a symbol of you dying to your old self and dying with Christ. But then as you come out of the water, it's, it's a glorious picture of new life, of rebirth, of, of resurrection power. Number four, the last thing we can be sure of, number four is this. The ascension of Jesus gives us eternal hope now. The ascension of Jesus gives us eternal hope now. Verse 22, our last verse for today. Talking about Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Oh, this is a big passage. This is a powerful word. It it doesn't say that Jesus rose from the dead and then he just lived for another 50 years and died somewhere and no one else knew what happened. No, It says that Jesus literally ascended, the resurrected Christ ascended and he sits at the right hand of his father and angels, authorities, and powers, a.k.a. every single person, power, system, organization, institution is in submission to him. Whoa. Let that sink in for a moment. Jesus being at the right hand of the father, that, that phraseology dates all the way back to Psalm 110. And many New Testament scholars look at that passage and see it as a Christological passage, meaning a a verse that points to Jesus and that he would ultimately fulfill. Jesus being at the right hand of God was exactly what Stephen saw when Stephen was being murdered for believing that Jesus rose from the dead. It says in Acts chapter 7 that he saw Jesus at the right hand of God. But what is Jesus doing there? I mean, are, are him and the Father just like in a like eternal rock, paper, scissors battle? Are they playing chess? Are they twiddling their thumbs, waiting till the end of the world? What is it that Jesus is doing in, in Romans chapter 8? Verse 34, we get a picture of what Jesus is doing. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Did you hear that? What is Jesus doing right now? He is interceding for you. Jesus is working on your behalf. Jesus is your advocate. Oh, guys, do you get it? Do you see what this means? I mean, tune in right now. I don't know if you're distracted or walking around you're thinking about logging off early. Don't hang on to this. This is so critical and so important. Here we go. Are you ready? Do I got your attention? Jesus wins in the end, and he's working on your behalf now. Jesus wins in the end, and he's working on your behalf now. Maybe some of you need to say that again with me. I know we already did this, but heck, we already started it. Let's do it again. And and instead of saying yours, say my. Say it with me from home, wherever you're watching from or listening from. You need to believe these words. Lean in. Jesus wins in the end and he's working on my behalf now. Maybe throw that in the chat to encourage those that are watching with you. Jesus wins in the end and he's working on my behalf now. Somebody needs that. Somebody needs to lean into that. Somebody feels like there's no way that's true. And I get that. But Jesus has all the powers and authorities, has your boss, has your company, has your marriage, has your parenting, has all of it in submission to him. You know, perspective is everything, isn't it? Let's say 2,000 years ago, you and I are in Rome, and we're standing there together. Maybe we're in some market, and we're in Rome during the time of Jesus. And somebody comes up to you and I, and they say, let me just ask you a question. Whose influence do you think will win in the end? Whose influence will carry on for 2,000 plus years? Whose influence will ultimately prevail? Will it be the Roman emperor and the Roman army, the most powerful forces in the ancient world? Will their influence remain? Or will this poor Jewish rabbi named Jesus and his 12 inexperienced followers I think if you and I are honest we would sit back and go I really like what he's talking about and I want to believe that but I could never imagine this giant superpower not being more influential than this rabbi and yet 2000 years ago isn't it funny that you and I and people all around the world name their children after the disciples and followers of Jesus, and we name our pets after Roman emperors. Perspective is everything. I was having a conversation a few years ago with our high school ministry coordinator, Courtney. She was going through a hard time, and we were talking about the power of perspective, of seeing things as God sees them, and how that gives us the ability to endure, to even thrive in situations that we don't fully understand because we believe that God is not done with our stories, that that all things are in submission to him, that he is working on our behalf. And so let me just encourage you for a moment and remind you of this. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. Justice will be served. Wrongs will be made right tears will be wiped away fears will be replaced with peace anger will be drowned out by love because jesus wins in the end can i get an amen wherever you're watching from give me the prayer emoji and amen whatever you can do hold on to that justice will be served tears will be wiped away wrongs will be made right Love will drown out anger because Jesus, he wins. He's won. Jesus wins. What I want to invite you to do now is close your eyes. If you're watching toddlers or you have some big responsibility, maybe you're like listening at work right now, doing surgery on someone, don't close your eyes, just keep your eyes open. We get that. But if you're at a place where you could... Close your eyes right now and just allow these words from Paul to seep into your heart. Allow them to be installed into the operating system of your life. Go ahead and close your eyes. Romans chapter 8, verses 35 to 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angel nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ. Jesus, our Lord. O oh, Heavenly Father. We thank you so much. That we can be sure that your death comforts us. We can be sure that your resurrection has power over demons and those who are against us. We can be sure that your resurrection makes our baptism meaningful. And we can be sure that your ascension, that you being at the right hand of the Father gives us eternal hope. Now. And so in these days, may we cling to this living.